We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Let me go ahead and read it for us. Uh, there's three points that are going to come from this. Um, but as much as possible, just stick your mind and, and your eyes and your heart on those two verses, and, and we'll work our way through. Starting verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're going to look at this morning God's building plan, God's building project, and the cornerstone, the starting point, the anchor of that project is Jesus Christ. He is the platform on which this building stands. Now, this short passage of two verses alone draws from so much Old Testament reference and expectation as it relates to the temple that I would like to walk you guys through a little bit of what has happened. That if you were somebody in the shoes of these exiles, mostly all Jewish, that are scattered, who are no longer connected to the Jewish faith as they had practiced, but now are finding fulfillment in Jesus and him alone for their identity, for their culture, for their hope. This is the background from which you are drawing from. This is the water from which you've been swimming your entire lives until you came to faith by the grace of God. And so the temple, and Pastor Hanley preached on this two weeks ago, this series has been wonderful in just tracking so much of this in a way that has been hopefully sensible and chronological and uh, intuitive. But in the first sermon of speaking about remembering the past, talking about King David not being the one that builds the temple, but that it is through his son that then the king that will sit on the throne who will reign forever, he will come, but then Solomon then built the temple he, indeed, erected that first temple. And so this temple is a physical presence. This temple is where there were specific spaces that were dedicated and committed for different purposes. But the temple, ultimately, in this physical location, is where God would meet his people. God would meet those who belong to him. In the presence, in the facilities, doing their ministry would be priests who would serve as intermediaries. And their job would be to connect God and his people through offering sacrifices on behalf of them. Why? Because God's people are sinful. And God's people have broken laws. And God is a holy and perfectly just and righteous God. So atonement needs to be made in the form of sacrifice. But it is then here, through all of these different activities, through all of this back and forth, through all the sacrifices, through prayers said, through teachings, through ways in which people are able to, to come to God through coming to this physical location, the temple, they were able to be in relationship with God. Now, shortly after that, they were in exile. Now, when I say shortly, you know, when you're talking about Old Testament times, we're talking about a couple hundred years here. But when you're talking about it from our vantage point, it just seemed like it wasn't that much longer after the temple was built that there was rebellion. And after rebellion, it wasn't long until the prophecies came of judgment coming to God's people. And then 
the Assyrians overtook the northern kingdom and exiled them. And a couple hundred years after that, the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem, ransacking the city, completely crumbling the temple to the ground. And the Jews then were removed from access to this physical meeting place in which they're able to sacrifice and draw near to God. And it was during the season in which they were being vacated from this physical identity, the prophet Isaiah said this. And he was speaking in context to a particular group of people, but then it is a prophecy that then Peter will claim later on in this chapter of First Peter 2. In Isaiah 28, 16, the prophet writes this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So he is writing this, prophesying this to a group of people that are, possibly many are in exile and many are being ruled over by people that are not people of God. And he then prophesies and says, you know what? One day, God will rebuild. One day, the temple will be back. One day, the city will be made alive again. And one day, this will all be built on a cornerstone that is precious, that is valuable. This cornerstone will last. This cornerstone will continue. The second temple then connects us to last week's sermon in which we see that Nehemiah was about rebuilding of the wall, but shortly before that, Ezra had brought a people back that rebuilt the temple. And this was a very modest temple, not, not a fancy temple, but he had rebuilt it. So you see God starting to work there, fulfilling prophecy, although it was a very simple temple, not one that remotely came close to Solomon's temple. And then Nehemiah, with the help of God's people and, and every single household coming to one section of the wall, completed the wall, celebrated Passover, they read the word, they worshiped God, they prayed. The second temple was rebuilt. The walls were there. And then a few hundred years later, coming to the time of Jesus, we have this King Herod, this King Herod that was jealous, this King Herod that was looking to kill all the babies in Bethlehem because he did not want anything to do with this King of the Jews, prophesied Messiah that was here. And he expanded the temple shortly before Jesus came on the scene. So by the time Jesus was doing ministry, by the time the disciples were being called, this now glorious second temple resides in Jerusalem. One that is on a platform of which if you go to Jerusalem today, you will still see the platform. One that has been built on a very sure foundation, but you don't find a temple there. The foundation is there, but the temple is not. But by all descriptions, historians of that time, it was a beautiful, glistening, glorious temple. A place in which the presence of God and the worship of his people, you could see the smoke from far away. You could see the lights. It was amazing. And this was the background and the context and the surrounding of the recipients of this letter. That if they had come from a Jewish background, they had worshipped in this temple. 
that if they considered themselves faithful people of God, they had participated and sacrificed and prayed, most likely, in this exact temple. But then Jesus came on the scene. I told you about God's building project, right? You see how it works is that usually God is doing something because he is king. But then sometimes people want to do their own thing. So there's like two competing building projects happening. That happens a lot in life, that we compete against what God is building. Maybe we don't understand the why sometimes. But then this is in the beginning of Jesus' ministry where he cleansed the temple. And he was challenged by the Jewish leaders. So in verse 19, he answers them by saying this, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's standing, right, right there. Verse 20, then Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. King Herod did a great job, and those that came before him. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And so starting from Jesus, you started to see kind of a a shifting of what God was doing. That there was something that was happening in which his desire for his people to be a kingdom of priests, more than just people locked onto a physical building, that was happening in all of the focus and the epicenter was on Jesus, the Son. That Jesus is now declaring himself to be the temple. How foolish is that? He was just a man standing in the greatness and the grandeur of this physical specimen of a temple. But he's saying, no, 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 look at me, guys. This temple is what you need to be paying attention to. This temple is where you will meet God because that's the purpose of the temple. This temple is where you can find atonement for your sin. And at the time, certainly people didn't understand that, but we know what he means. This temple is where you can be made right with God. This temple is where your identity would be complete as the people of God. Not this temple, this physical area that we're all standing nearby. And why is that? Because Jesus is the tested and precious cornerstone. A cornerstone serves at least three functions. And I am not an architecture guy, so, you know, kind of bear with me here. Feel free to, you know, come and uh, enlighten me afterwards for those of you guys that are, you know, professional. Um, But, you know, when you think about a cornerstone, it it does a, a few things. Number one is that it points out a location, right? If you put a cornerstone there, guess what? Your building's there. So when Jesus says, I'm the temple, It doesn't matter where he is. If he's standing next to the temple, well, then, yeah, sure, this is a temple. But if he's not near the temple, guess what? The temple's there. It's wherever Jesus is. It's not where the building is. So a cornerstone gives location. X marks the spot. So you're either building a temple that is on Christ, or you're building something else that is not on Christ. But Jesus decides the location. The second aspect of a cornerstone is that it provides support. It is the first piece of a foundation that then holds up all of the stones that will go on top of the building. 
which also means that a cornerstone is kind of silly if nothing is built on top. Then it just looks like a stone on a pile of dirt. So the presence of a cornerstone means that you're building something on it, but then it provides the support to be able to have those stones rest on top. Finally, the cornerstone gives direction. That's why it's in the corner, I think. So that whichever way it points, that's where it is. So if you're a cornerstone, you're pointing this way, guess what? Your building is going this way. But if you're a cornerstone and you're pointing this way, it doesn't matter what you're doing over here, your building's supposed to go that way. Okay? I think we all get this. The cornerstone's crucial. The cornerstone is the difference maker in any building, which is why Jesus finds, Jesus himself is said by Peter to be the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 28, to be then that cornerstone in God's building project. What are the things that compete with Jesus? Well, when the building that we are trying to build is not one that points to Jesus as being the only way, that points to Jesus as being the only identity that can satisfy us, that points to Jesus as being the only way by which we can be saved, the only way by which we can be a part of God's family. If something that we are building does not point to that truth, then what we are building is going astray. See, Jesus is pointing us in a particular direction that goes right back to him. But if we are building something that is turning away from him, that highlights something else, that is entertaining other priorities, then we are missing the mark. In Acts chapter 4, you find that this declaration is made. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, these are the kind of teachings and sermons and truth-telling that gets the people of God in trouble. Wait, so you mean it's not by the sacrificial system that we can be saved? You mean it's not by my citizenship in Rome that we can be saved? It's not by how much wealth we have or the right neighborhood that we live in? It's not because of the status that we have or the education that we've provided for our kids? The opportunities in this country or in other places. It's not those things that saves us, that defines us, that makes us meaningful and purposeful in life? No, there's no salvation in anyone else, for there's no under name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So anything that we build that is not resting on that fundamental truth is a building that is on another cornerstone and not on Jesus. So Jesus is not only the platform that can hold the entire gathering of his saints for all time that then breaks itself up into local church families like ours in which we all do our part to make disciples. 
He can hold all of this. But he is also the only one by which anything that we do as a church carries meaning and significance and lasts. If we don't point people to their need for a savior, if you don't point people to their need to repent and believe in Christ, to turn away from their sin, and if we don't walk with them so that they become more like Jesus in their hearts, in their priorities, in their thoughts, if we don't come alongside our brothers and sisters so that as Jesus prepares to take us to heaven, that we are with one another, then we are missing something, no matter what we are building. Because then we're saying there's salvation in something else instead of Christ and him crucified. So let's go on. Let's look at the building pieces here. So the second point is the people of God's family. And that's intentionally put there, besides just alliterating, but the family of God, the building of God, is actually the people of God. You know, the, the living stones are you. If you are in Christ, if the Holy Spirit is in you, you are the living stones. You know, there's such a, a wonderful connection even to what was immediately referenced. That Jesus, this mighty cornerstone that sets the direction, that undergirds his people, his church, we are like him. This is like the most biblical reference to why we are called Christians that I could think of. Because Christian just means little Christ. And in this passage, you actually even find that connection that Jesus is the living stone. You are living stones. Just smaller, I'm thinking. You're little Christs. That if Jesus is alive, you are alive. In Romans 6, it speaks about how you've been baptized into Christ in the likeness of his death, but then you are risen with him in fullness of life. You are alive not because you breathe, but you are alive in Christ because he is in you. That's why you're a living stone. And a gathering of his people are living stones. It's a beautiful thing to imagine. So as Jesus then resurrected from the dead by God's power, he promises to come back for his church. And he promises to take us with him to heaven and the new heavens and new earth. That we are able to experience vibrancy in this life because that life is resurrection life. It is not just your physical life. It's not just how healthy you are, but it is that Christ in you, the hope of glory, that you're able to have this life that shakes you, that changes you, that impacts you as a living stone. But see, it's not enough that you yourself are alive and vibrant, but that because you are, God is using you to build walls and sections and areas in a spiritual house. The building blocks of the house of God are his living stones. They are you. What makes you alive? The spirit of God. What accomplished that? God's spirit. So all the glory goes to him. We couldn't make it happen. We can't make ourselves come alive, but his spirit 
can give us a new heart and we can come alive. And then this then is a spirit that not only gives us promise of eternal life and resurrection life, but then you're able to experience a newness of life. Just walking, just living every single day. So personally, if the Spirit is alive in you, you are, each of you, a temple, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. But then altogether, then, if God is making a house out of living stones, which is all of his people, and there's this collective, and there's this corporate aspect of being the temple, then living stones form a living building, which reflects our living Savior. This past weekend, I, I took a trip to Toronto to spend some time with family on my mom's side. And part of it is this relationship to life and that my uncle is uh, dying of stage four cancer and, and my uh, you know, mom and siblings wanted to you know, go see him and, and help. And, and I was motivated to go because I wanted to see him alive instead of just arranging my schedule to see him at his funeral. So it worked out. I went. You know, but one of the things that you, know, you always kind of take note of if, if uh, you pay attention sometimes is when you're on a plane and you're about to land, all of a sudden you start seeing lights, right? But depending on the time of day, um, there's a variety of activity that's related to those lights. So the presence of lights lets you know that there's a city there, right? And, you know, when you come into LA, it's crazy. It's like you start seeing it from, like, miles away. It's like, wow, it's area covered with lights. But depending on the time in which you fly in or fly out, that's when you see activity, so when you're coming in at a time when people are all over the place and they're commuting and they're working and they're traveling, then you see lights everywhere. You see our, you know, horrendously packed traffic, you know, from very far away. But then you see that there's life, signs of life. But then if you come in at 2 in the morning, then maybe there's no traffic. That's a maybe. At 2 in the morning, you see the lights, but there's no movement. It's just still as you're flying in. See, God's temple is not defined by whether the temple exists or that there are people sitting in seats. God's temple, if it's filled with living stones, the signs of life are actually you. The signs of life in which you see people moving from place to place, commuting, traveling, working, picking up, dropping off their kids, taking trips, running errands, that's life. And it happens in the context of an area that even when you're flying in, you can see. Now, you don't know who they are, but you know if a city is alive or if it's dead at that time of day. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So let's be mindful that the people of God, even though we are not the ones that give us life, the people of God reflect the life that has been given to us. And that life consists of our to and fro in that building that God is building, which if you are a member here in our church, 
it would be this church, and more specifically, this congregation. The movement, the connection, the ministry, the community. That's life, not just that you're here, although we love that you are here. But see, the beauty of this is that it's, it's not a sense of, wow, I feel obligated to move. But it's like, hey, if I'm alive, I can't sit still. If I'm alive, i got to do something. If I'm alive, i got to go somewhere. I have a maker that gave me life so that he could use me to build something for his glory. And so on the platform of Jesus, his people are laid out, put in places, connected to one another, involved in each other's lives intentionally, and serving one another using their gifts. Why? Not because they have to, but because they're alive. That's what the house of God looks like. Finally, oh, I wanted to show this picture. I actually really like this picture only because it almost looks like uh, the end of like a some kind of a incident from like a, you know, like a movie or something where you kind of walk away, you know, from uh, just saving the day or something. So, um, you know, you have, uh, those are um, some of our leaders, uh, deacons and building committee uh, pastors that uh, we took a tour uh, of our building. Uh, but I wanted to use that to show the, the, the stones that are built on top of each other and so on and so forth, spiritual house. But the life is what's inside the house. The life is what is happening amongst his people in the house, not just the building. You could count the bricks. You can check it off and say, oh, job well done to the contractors. But that's not the life that the Bible speaks of. You see, because if that was what was supposed to encourage Peter and those recipients of the letter, they would go back to the temple. But they left that because the life they have in Christ is supreme. It's just better. It's lasting. It's eternal, even in the midst of trying circumstances. So the last point is, in the second half of verse 5, the purpose of God's family. I'll go ahead and read this for us, starting from the beginning of verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. So what is the purpose of the building of God? It is to give worship to God. Why? Because the temple is where God meets his people. And what does his people do if Christ has satisfied what is needed to please God and that he has given us his righteousness? Then we can fully praise and honor and adore him with our lives. When the Israelites first came out of Egypt, um, God was instructing them, giving them the covenant, giving them the laws, and forming them together. In chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, there was this declaration from him of what his desire and his plan was for his people. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And he shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now let's bring this into 
the New Testament, where we will address this at the sermon next week. But if you see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which is a continuation of this morning's passage, there's this declaration. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So why are you made alive? To fulfill God's purpose of declaring his praises, of demonstrating his goodness, of being in full surrender to his will because there is no greater king that we can serve, that we can know. There is no greater family that we can be a part of. So if we are the building, then what is the purpose of this building? This is another picture of the inside of the same morning when we took a tour. But what you saw here is, uh, if you kind of step back and look, it it was kind of uh, interesting in that this is what the stage is going to look like uh, from the inside, and and the English congregation will have the privilege of using it uh, and of worshiping God in it and of making disciples in it. But in there, we're kind of getting a tutorial. We're kind of getting like this, you know, uh, instruction of, okay, well, this area is this, that area is that. And then what you saw there is a gathering of, of the pastors and deacons who have a variety of ministries and gifts and training and expertise. And we're just there to, to learn, to ask questions, and to find out what is the best way of using this area. What, what are the steps to come? What is still needed for this building to be complete? And then so what is the purpose of this building? Back to the why, so that it could be a reflection of what it looks like when God's people are working together as a family, investing in one another through relationship, walking with each other in disciple-making, and using our gifts, which were given to us by the Holy Spirit for the common good, and to build each other up, and to spread the fame and the name of Christ locally and globally. And so this is where we need your prayers, and this is where we need more reflection on the wise, both for us and also for our church, because there's so many things that you can do with a beautiful building like this. But we need to always come back to the purpose of why any of this exists. And it's because he is building his people to be a spiritual house where his name will be glorified and lives surrendered and joy demonstrated, bringing glory to his name. And then his people utilize their resources and their gifts and their talents and their commitment to one another in covenant to be able to do whatever it is that God puts on their heart and leads and guides them to facilitate that worship, to bring that message to the community, into our families, into our neighborhoods, into the world. So we should have something to look forward to. We really do, because in anticipation of this completion, there's so much that God is going to be stretching us and using us and challenging us to pursue. But in order for us to realize the purpose for which that building is being erected, we need to own 
and we need to commit and we need to drive ourselves to mercy and the goodness of our God who has made us alive through Christ and who is then putting us into this beautiful building at this church to be able to make the most of him. So the big idea for today is this, that God's people realize their purpose as living stones when they build on and make much of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Please pray with me. Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for what we see with our eyes, for how you've worked among us, how you've been faithful in provision and your timeline and and really just opening doors that we didn't expect as well as providing for our needs abundantly. Father, we thank you, God, for the work in our midst and for the building that is coming up. We thank you for everyone's hands and hearts that have worked and labored towards it and have given and have prayed over it. And even as we have been engaging with this prayer guide, indeed, we recognize more and more that we are truly blessed to be a blessing. But Father, we pray, Lord, that above all, God, that we would be set apart to be your people, just as the exiles in Peter's time who trusted in Jesus as their Savior, as their Messiah, as their Lord, and as their King, decided then to build their lives on him and not on what they can see with their eyes. We pray that you would anchor us to the platform of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that remind us, Lord, that our identity is in him and him alone, that any hope, any plan, any dream that is worth having that will bring glory to a name is only possible because we are built on the cornerstone of Christ together. Help us then as your people to commit to one another, to bring about life-giving activity and relationships and ministry in our midst. Help us each all to take that next step so that we're able to reflect that vibrant life that you have given to us, that resurrection life in each one who is in Christ. And finally, I pray, God, that you would lead and guide us so that we never forget our purpose. Father, buildings come and go, but we want to trust in you. So help us, Father, shape our hearts, answer our whys, solidify our convictions so that we are anchored on Jesus and him alone. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen.